Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. I'm joined here in the MMU journalism staff room. Uh, no, newsroom we're in today. <laughs> the newsroom by my colleagues Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. And I'm delighted to say we're also joined on the line by journalist Louise Tickle, who specialises in education and social affairs, but who also specialises in covering the family courts. And it's in that capacity, Louise, we've, we've, you've played a really vital role in helping to change the Ministry of Justice rules, which mean that many more legal reporters can now get access to the family courts. Hi, Louise. Welcome to Bang to Rights. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, look, tell us a little bit about this new guidance. It just came out, uh, what, I think this time last week, so we just missed it as we were finishing recording um, last week. But give us a, an outline of what, what's in it and, what, importantly, what's changed. Well, um, what's in it is basically that the president of the family division, so the most senior family judge in the country, has issued guidance, which I think should go you know, some way to changing the approach that family courts take when a journalist applies to be able to lift the statutory and, and very strict reporting restrictions that exist, which mean that we can't report pretty much anything of the detail of what goes on in family courts, which are held in private. Um, and it came out of a, an appeal that I, I made earlier this year um, against what I believed were unlawful reporting restrictions that had been imposed by a judge on a case I was interested in. Um, and I thought that he'd done the whole exercise of deciding which was most important, um, Article 8, rights to privacy of the family, or Article 10, rights to freedom of expression by the media. Um, and so I, I appealed, and luckily the appeal court agreed with me. Um, and I asked for this guidance to be issued to say this is how courts should approach um, media requests to lift reporting restrictions. And, and in the end, it was produced. <laughs> And what's in in detail? What what's what's the thing that's the, are there are there one or two clauses that are most important? You think they're big, bigger changes? Well, there was never guidance before. Right. For either so the, the fact that it's there the at media. all is, so, is, a, so, is a step yes, forward. Absolutely. But there were there were there was guidance on how courts should make restrictions, but there was no guidance on how they should relax them, and that's really important as an attitudinal change for a family court, which many people you know, believe operates in secret, which effectively it does. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it sets out really clearly how a court should approach these applications because you turn up as a journalist to a family court it is scary. It's daunting. Um, I, I still don't love the process of, of having to decide when to stand up and make an oral application to relax reporting restrictions, which, frankly, nobody ever wants you to do. No. Um, no, nobody wants to deal with it. Probably the judge least of all, because their lists are packed. They're really busy. They want to get on. And so does everybody in the case. Um, and, you know, and you have to realise that these are often really distressed and sometimes very vulnerable families who are involved in these cases. So to them, the idea that a journalist might want to report what's going on can be really, um, yeah, really distressing. So it gives you guidance as to, you know, who to approach initially. Do you need to give the judge notice? The answer is it might be desirable, but there's no reason why you should have to. You can just turn up in court with your press card. You have to be an accredited member of the press. Um, you can get access to most family court hearings unless there are objections. And you don't have to give any notice at all that you want to report. You're per perfectly entitled to stand up and say, 
I'd like to do this on the day. And I think that does make a difference. Um, there's a because really one of, I mean, I suppose yeah, the, the truth is that actually you may not know whether there's going to be a story for you when you when you go to court. Is that is that one of the problems? Um, <laughs> it's a big problem. Yeah. Um, I I try not to go to family courts unless I unless know you know there's going to be something that yeah. there is going to yeah. be something. But there certainly have been times when I have hung around courts and happened to have a free morning when I've just gone in. And <clears> you know, on certain of those occasions, I might have liked to report it if I could have got a commission. But there's a there's another bit. In, in the um, in the guidance, which says courts should be astute to assist reporters seeking to attend a hearing. This is so important because I've had so many times when I've kind of been knocked back, either by sort of obstructive court officers or by mm. ushers who didn't understand that the mm. media had the right of attendance, even if we didn't have the right to report, and even just getting information about where to go on what day, when non-molestation injunctions are applied for, um, when there might be a certain kind of hearing that I'm interested in. All those things are really difficult, and it's not easy to find that information out online. So if there's just guidance, which there is now, saying to a court, you need to help this journalist, I think that's really valuable. Yeah, I, I would add actually, Louise, that you know, we, we talk to students about how to make uh, approaches in court, whether it's to the clerk or, or to the usher. Uh, and you can see in the, in the press every week lots of instances of ushers who don't know what they're talking about, you know, sometimes magistrates and judges, and, and mm. the fact that we're having constantly to, to wage a battle just to be yes. a present uh, in everyday magistrates' courts and sometimes, you know, crown courts. So I really kind of tip my hat off to you to, for you doing that in a court which is even more restrictive um, for journalists. Yes, I mean, I mean, if, if, if criminal and other civil yes. courts where we have, you know, had very long-standing rights of attendance mm. um, are, are not sure of our rights, then, then in family courts it's even more difficult for sure sure and i guess the best advice louise to a journalist is to uh, turn up with a copy of the guidelines in your pocket just in case you do encounter Absolutely. somebody who's take not... them with you yes so you got some I, mean, I, mean, I, I have already um was it yesterday yes yesterday i i um i happened to have a particular judge's email because i'd been in correspondence with him before but normally speaking you don't have this but i sent an email to a family court judge a high court judge yesterday saying um Referring to the guidance, um, I don't need to give you notice that I'm going to attend, but as a courtesy, this is just to inform you that, mm. you know, sometime next week, this on this particular day, I'm going to be in your court and I'm going to be asking to relax um, reporting restrictions. And, you know, I think it's good to give notice if you can, because it gives everybody time to think. And what people hate in family courts, I'm sure what they hate in all courts, is to be caught on the hop. Mm. Now, you know, I don't think journalists should be trying to catch the system on the hop. I think we should be trying to create a situation whereby everybody is able to make their best arguments um and and, and so the right decision gets made yeah. but yes i mean refer refer if you're making an application either orally or by email to the guidance um i mean another thing that i think is really useful in the guidance is that it actually tells judges to invite the journalist in court to to make an oral application and then gives the journalist the right of being able to come back at any points that are made in objection to that to their application to report because there have been so many times well i think every time i'm in court you're there the case progresses you start to realize that there's something interesting and that you do want to relax reporting restrictions and you haven't got a clue when to stand up or what to say mm. nobody makes it easy for you um partly because nobody really wants you there 
And the, you can suddenly find that the judge is concluding the case before you've even kind of had a chance to, yes. to stand up and you're mm. there kind of waving your mm. hand at the back of the court, kind of thinking, oh, goodness, am I upsetting everybody and wasting court time by doing this? Mm. And you just have to do it. But at least, you know, now it has been said, a judge should invite you. And I think that does make all the I, difference. I think, uh, sorry, Dave, hey, Louise, but having read the uh, judgments, um, the guidance, it's actually quite reassuring for journalists. And I think you're quite right in that it would have a an olive branch to say, listen, we respect your rights, we understand why you need to be here. And uh, actually, funnily enough, we were talking about attendance at family courts, and I've been a journalist for 25, 30-odd years, and I'm probably ashamed to say I've never been to a family court because mm. I've worked in regional papers, and we, we just didn't do that. And it's not mm. on the curriculum really as such, you no. know. We, we don't tend to talk too much about family courts in class. We just say, well, really, it's a very restricted area. But do, do you think this guidance will... Uh, encourage more reporting? I mean, it's it's hard to know because everybody's budgets are so restricted, aren't they? I mean, mm. it's hard to even do proper criminal or, or kind uh -huh. of housing law reporting anymore. And those are issues which have Im immense impacts on people's lives. But, you know, I think there is a really good justification for, for making a case to the, to the mainstream media for dedicating time and resources to uh -huh. this because family courts, they are empowered to make some of you know, the most draconian decisions that the state can make around people's lives. They can remove your child. They can extinguish the legal relationship you have with that child forever. Um, they can completely and fundamentally change people's lives. And, that you know, there isn't much more that the state can do than imprison you or, or you know, in some states put you to death. So those, those kind of are three really serious things, but we don't have the right at the moment to report. Now, I think the only way really to convince um, editors to send journalists to family courts is for us to to kind of more routinely have the right to report the detail of what goes on. Sure. And I don't just mean the detail in terms of what the news value is of the decisions being made, but the processes. And what mm -hmm. people talk to me about a lot who have been through family court is their dismay and their, their you know, suspicion, I suppose, of the, the processes that are undergone in family courts which can't be scrutinised. And I think that's yes. really important. Mm -hmm. Louise, one question, I guess. We, Dave and Jez and myself and, and the, other, um, the other teachers here who specialise in law and court reporting and such like, we always try to make the point to our, our journalism students generally that regardless of where they want to specialise, there will almost certainly be some point during the career where there'll be ordered by an editor to go to court as, a, mm. as part of a story that they're working on anyway. And they may think there's no legal ramifications to this story, whatever, but somehow there's, a, there's, there's some reason that they have to go to court to follow a protagonist in a story. Mm. Um, do you think we should... What, what could we do? Because I introduced you as a, a specialist in education and social affairs. Mm. Um, what, what do you think we could be saying to students, advising students to to not to be so daunted about going to court and not to be daunted about going to family court in particular that, that that's kind of um what being a journalist is isn't it it's it's being daunted mm. but doing it anyway, doing I, mean, it anyway I am, yes. I am, I am yeah. always scared there's no point pretending i you know <laughs> you go and you interview people in power and <clears> you know i'm shaking but they're shaking too which you know you quite yeah. often mm. everybody in the room is terrified um i think as well it's a cultural thing isn't it because I, I say to students and when i tip them to court i said you'd be surprised it's almost like a private members club everyone knows everyone else the, the prosecution know the defense they all know the magistrates yes. it's, it's very clubbable and then suddenly you arrive this pesky journalist who who 
people look down upon. And, mm. and I say, just, just get past that and realise you have a function to play. I mean, I mean, the, the, the fact is that we do have a really important role to play in that courtroom. And I think as long as you are knowledgeable about your subject and you believe that that you have a right, it's possible to get over the fe those feelings of, of fear and being out of place. Um, you know, there's no question that a whole raft of different issues that you will report on as, as a journalist can, can lead you to a family court. The very first time I ended up in a family court was because an editor who I was writing a piece um, for on domestic abuse, and I was trying to explain how the legal aid cuts were impacting on victims of domestic abuse who had to go and represent themselves in person. She said, well, get yourself down to the court and go and see what it's like for them. Mm, um, of course she did. I'd written this whole article. In fact, I'd filed it. And she said, well, there's this central hole in your article. You're saying how awful it is. Well, go and go and see. <laughs> so off I went to, to see. And it was at that at that point, in fact, five or six years ago that I realized I could go and see, but I couldn't describe <laughs> <laughs> because I was I was banned from doing that. And that's where you know, my whole kind of jag about transparency started from because I couldn't believe that there were these incredibly huge decisions being made about people's lives to do with their safety and their children's safety that um, that people were also complaining to me about and that public policy like legal aid cuts were affecting. Mm. And I couldn't describe the effect on people. Um, you know, that if you can be a news journalist um, and have no particular interest in family courts, but you can find yourself in, in a case such as, you know, for instance, um, you know, the really tragic death of um, the little girl Poppy Worthington, mm. um, which ended up both in criminal and in family courts um, with, with really um, very, very careful restrictions being placed on what mm. could be reported by the judge over a period of time but the judge clearly understanding that it was really very seriously in the public interest to understand as much as possible while while retaining safety of you know puppy's siblings um of, of what had gone on because that was you know very serious state failings um of substantially by the police who came in for a lot of criticism but those kinds of things were were uncovered through the family court so you will find yourself there if you're if you're covering serious cases okay well louise we could keep you here all afternoon i think because it's a, it's really really interesting to hear what you say and i think you've, you've done an enormous public service actually for the whole of our trade mm, by definitely. by oh. pushing this issue <laughs> and getting getting these guidelines finally published so thanks very much for that and and thanks very much indeed for coming on bang to rights thanks a lot you're welcome. So, uh, yeah, so Louise Tickle, thank you very much indeed. And I'll, I'll put some links on to uh, Louise's website. People can have a look at, at some of her work. And, uh, yeah, so um, before we, we've got a couple of other things that we wanted to look at. But, Dave, <coughs> Dave what, what, what have you seen in the news so far this uh, week? Well, The Guardian's done a fantastic um, sort of serial piece on um, children in the youth justice system mm. and a big investigation. It seems to be for the Manchester team especially, Helen Peard, the editor there, and looking at how children are juveniles, as we call them, are treated in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. looking at the state of the youth courts, um, how long cases take to, to come to fruition, the nature of the sentencing, how it's, uh, you know, baying people uh, are, are overrepresented in the, in the youth courts, and looking at the age of criminality, of course, age, we have one of the lowest in Europe at age 10, and uh, so it's been, it's made for fascinating reading, actually, mm -hmm. I and I tip my hats off to the Guardian for highlighting, again, you know, ties in with the family law, maybe somewhere um, that uh, A, the general public, and, and B, we don't devote enough time to yeah. the idea of youth courts. Um, so a fantastic piece of journalism uh, and a great piece of uh, team reporting, I think. Yeah.
Yeah, good. Um, Jez, we'll come on to the, the, the Lady in the Lake story in a yeah, moment, sure, but anything yeah. else that's caught you just, eye? Just uh, picking up on um, John Burko, I noticed he uh, lodged oh, a complaint yeah. with Ipso uh, against the Mirror, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, a story yeah, they yeah. reported saying that he'd he'd been approached to appear on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and had demanded a million pounds yeah. to appear. He says that's untrue and has referred it to Ipso. But the Mirror, interestingly, standing by it, um, saying that, that those conversations did take place. So, well, actually, I think in, in the explanation, he's not even ruled out appearing. He's just said he's quibbling with the money, but not, he's not yeah. emphatically said, I'm not going on to do so celebrity. So whether he's just, yeah, so interesting to see what Ipso is responsible yeah. Yeah. for that. Yeah, but yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, for me, the, just the other day, I was talking to the MA students um, right here in, in the newsroom about the Criminal Cases Review Commission and the work that they do sifting through lots and lots of, of criminal appeals. What I said to the, the students was that although the body's been exist, in existence since the, the mid-1990s, it's actually quite rare for cases to go through the commission and then see their way to the Court of Appeal. And then, of course, yesterday, we heard about mm. a very, very high-profile, long-running appeal, which has done exactly that. The Lady in the Lake case centres on the posthumous appeal on behalf of Gordon Park, who was found guilty of murdering his wife, Carol. Her body was found in Coniston Water in the Lake District in 1997, 21 years after she disappeared. We'll hear a little, we can hear a little bit of the grounds for that appeal now. Regular listeners will know that Apula Broadcasters and the Press Association and some of the newspapers are sometimes allowed to film inside the Court of Appeal. And this case was one of them. So here's Henry Blacksland QC outlining some of the terms, the key terms of their appeal. The basis on which the conviction is now said to be unsafe arises from allegations of non-disclosure by the prosecution at trial of matters relating to the witness Wainwright's credibility and to the pathologist Dr Tapp's opinion as to the unlikelihood of the ISACs being used to cause the injuries to the deceased's face. The respondent accepts that that material should have been disclosed, but has provided no explanation for the non-disclosure other than to suggest that there was no bad faith. It is submitted, however, that it's difficult to avoid the conclusion in the absence of any explanation that there was possibly an element of bad faith in the decisions not to disclose the evidence and more importantly that the non-disclosure is directly relevant to the safety of the conviction. In addition, very late in the day, there is now uh, new expert evidence from two uh, forensic dentists which undermines Dr Tapp's opinion, we submit, that a sharp-edged implement such as an axe was used to cause the injuries to the deceased, which is relevant in turn to the question of whether the appellant's ice axe uh, was the murder weapon. Henry Blacksland QC, and that clip came from Sky News' broadcaster of Tuesday's opening hearing. Now, Jez, you've covered this story live at various times over, over the years, including mm. the actual discovery of Carol Park's body in Coniston. Is that right? That's correct. Two decades ago we're yes. talking about now. Well, going back to 1997 when the body was uh, discovered, I was um, a youngish reporter at the Westmoreland Gazette, the local paper in the Lake District, and uh, my news editor lived next door to the head of the local scuba diving team who found the body in Coniston. And and this particular night they'd found, they thought it was like a parcel or something in Coniston water. 
hadn't done anything with it. He came home and he was just going into his house when my news editor was going in as well and said, Mike, we might have a story for you. And he jokingly said, we found this thing in the lake. It might be a body, not suspecting it was. That it actually was. And the next day when it was open, of course, they found it was Carol Ann Park's body. Um, so I, I was involved in the initial reporting of the fact that this body had been discovered. Carol Ann Park had been missing for 21 years. Um, and her former husband was suspected of it. Now, Gordon Park was on holiday at the time in France with his his uh, subsequent wife, um, and police were sort of getting access to his house, get evidence, and I was one of the reporters who went out to interview Caroline Park's remaining family, her brother, I believe it was, and then I later covered the inquest as well in 1998 when Gordon Park gave evidence uh, into her death. I then left the paper, um, but I know some of my colleagues um, reported on his subsequent trial when he was imprisoned, and he also contacted the Westmoreland Gazette from prison, still protesting his innocence yeah. in about 2008, I think. Yeah, um, which would have been just before, just he, took before he took his own, took life, his own in life in prison, yeah. But oh. I think at the time, in 98, there wasn't enough evidence to charge him, and he, he didn't go to trial at that point, and I think it was the early 2000s when... He was eventually convicted. But you, you mentioned that you covered the appeal because we, we were talking off mm. mic while Henry Blackson there was speaking because the, the terms of their appeal relate to, first of all, the, 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 the possible murder uh, mm. weapon, which they, they think initially they thought was, an, was a, a boulder, a rock. Yes. And, but uh, the, or sorry, the, it was an, a, axe. an axe. It, it, uh, but now the evidence looks like it, the, the injuries aren't consistent with that. And then yeah. particularly the, the injuries to, to Caroline's face and to her yeah. jaw. Well, the, as I say, at the inquest, which will be 98, um, I think the, they, the evidence I remember that the pathologist gave, well, it was a sharp in, instrument That's from right, memory, yeah. mm. which is what would be the link to the, the ice axe. But it sounds like that that's been drawn into, has been questioned now. That's really. going to be part of the appeal. I mean, yes. the other thing was that there was a boulder, a particular kind of stone that was found. And yes. they, that had initially been part of the appeal that went to the, the Criminal Cases Review Commission. But yes. uh, Henry Blackson said that now they've now yes. put that to one side. They're not going to make that part of this, this appeal. From memory, I don't know where that boulder was originally taken from. I was supposed to have come from Gordon Park's from his garden, his garden yeah. which was near Barrow in Furness. Yeah. I think that was the, the detail of that evidence. Yeah. Um, but Gordon Park's children, who would be very young at the time of her death, they've consistently sort of fought for his for a pardon for their father and have sort mm. of said he's 100% um, innocent, you know. So it's it, for me, it's been a fascinating one, and one that's kind of always lurked in the background because always wanted to know what happened. And, you know, when you're a young reporter as well, something like that ha can have quite a big impact yeah. on you. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, fascinating development, really. Yeah, so I'm not sure how long the case is, is um, timed for, but we'll keep, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And we'll, mm. we'll come back to it um, if and when there's a there's a final. Well, there will be a final decision yes. at some point. So yeah. we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll keep a look on it. Now, another case that's been in the news th over the last week: the tribunal hearings involving the BBC news presenter Samira Ahmed. She's challenging the corporation over equal pay. She says she's been paid around seven times less than the high-profile male presenter Jeremy Vine for doing similar work. The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinchcliffe told the, their Today in Focus podcast that the BBC's defence partly revolves around what they call likability. 
we've seen the same arguments unfold in cinema. You know, it was always said that women weren't uh, able to carry off really big blockbuster films as, as the lead because audiences didn't really want to come and watch them. So, you know, unfortunately, female stars couldn't be paid as much as male leads would be paid. It was just cold, hard economics. And yet, as things have changed, as studios have started taking more risks on casting, women in lead roles and as particularly the data has come in from streaming services which show in granular detail what people want to watch what they choose to watch and when we're finding out that audiences are fine watching a show that's got a woman in the lead role they don't mind they like it and I expect we're going to have that same argument about black actors in lead roles you know the presumption is you couldn't have a black James Bond because not enough people would want to watch it well actually how do we know how do you know until you try it that's Gabby Hinscliffe of The Guardian I do recommend that people subscribe to the podcast today and focus it's a really, really great listen, digging deeper into major stories and showing how journalists work on them and, and get the stories published. But for a little bit more about the Samira Ahmed case, I spoke to MMU Journalism's Ellie Shember Critchley. She's been following the Equal Pay campaign at the BBC now for some time. Well, we've been tracking equal pay during um, sessions that we've taught for the past couple of years. Um, and it has been a recurring issue. In fact, there was the accidental accidental leak of all of the names of women who've brought forward equal pay cases. So this is a systemic problem within the BBC. Um, and I think the issue of likability brings out how horribly subjective these decisions have been made. Um, the notion that um, a woman who is a trained journalist and who brings in uh, higher viewing figures on a programme that requires much more work is valued less because the person who is presenting points of view is seemed as more likeable and approachable by the audience is a terrible um, bar to set your decision-making on. Now, I guess the BBC will be arguing that uh, it's not about that. This is about the fact that Jeremy Vine's contract applied across a number of different programmes. Samira Ahmed was getting £440 for that one programme. Does that cut any ice? No, that just doesn't wash. You know, equally, he has a contract for a number of programmes, but um, it was documented that when he had a stand-in, for points of view, they were offering that person a thousand pounds because it was relatively easy work, end quote. So there was absolutely no justification for this wide gap in pay between Fine and Ahmed. I guess it just looks really bad for the BBC, this, doesn't it? You know, the pictures of Samira Ahmed with the NUJ and with a whole host of other female presenters, including actually Naga Munchetti, who turned up for one of the days at the tribunal to show her support, even though it's for her it's not a pay issue. But the, the gender issue, the BBC is just not handling it terribly well by the looks of things. No, and I think it, it highlights the much wider issue, that muddier notion of it's not how hard you have worked, how well trained you are. There is some fuzzy notion of judgment making going on. And we don't just see that at the BBC, we see it widely. Um, I've worked in politics and I met it as a rife decision making element there. And, you know, I, f I find this very difficult. You know, we talk to our students about doing their best becoming practised, becoming rigorous journalists. So the notion of likability, 
that it's still in play now in 2019 is something that absolutely needs to change. So I hope um, the Ahmed case um, is the beginning of, of this shift in how we award um, practised and disciplined journalists. Just finally, I'd, for a long time I was a, a, an NUJ rep at the BBC at various parts of the BBC and we always argued that the BBC as a publicly funded employer should be should demonstrate best practice in all of this sort of stuff and so shouldn't, shouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff in the first place. We're in the 21st century now, for goodness sake. Are there a couple of steps that you think the BBC should be taking then to address this more widely and show itself off as a good employer? I think as much as they standardised contracts a couple of years ago, they need to be reviewing all of the job descriptions effectively of, of the roles that their staff are undertaking and where they have this, what I feel should be legacy contracts of personalities over quality, uh, definable quality, that needs to be brought into line as well. Okay, Ellie, thanks very much for coming on Bang to Rights yet again. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Now, one of the other things that has been in the news, obviously, is the election. Yeah. And we did say this time last week that we couldn't avoid it, so we're going to have a dip into it every, every week, probably, and we'll, we'll come to some more. But what, one of the things I wanted to look at this week was that Ofcom has published its guidance to the broadcasters, mm. um, about sorry, initial guidance, guidance to broadcasters about how they should cover the election. Um, and it, re, it revolves around some opinion polls. They've done an aggregate of opinion polls and where the different parties start now, any, any by-elections that have happened, the local government elections back in May, and they've tried to tally up where they stand kind of nationally, percentage-wise, and then their instruction basically to the broadcasters is, you have to follow that. So if someone's on 26%, then you give them 26% of airtime. If they're on 43%, they get 43% of airtime. That's the kind of guidance that, that they lay down, and that the broadcasters have to stick to that pretty rigidly and I know from my past experience that it can become a bit of a headache actually. Dave what, what do you make of the what we've heard yeah, so Yeah I mean it sounds it? quite prescriptive and, and it goes back, I mean I'm not a broadcaster you know so I, I have the joy of being uh, mm. of having been a print journalist and when I hear tales of broadcasters I, I thank God in many mm. ways I, I was a print journalist the, the old thing about you know timing people with the stopwatches yeah. Paul Chadwick's got a good Piece, the readers editor of the Guardian about show of voice data, basically how much time do people get, um, as you say, Pete, proportionally. Well, yeah, we used to have spreadsheets. And we used to have of to course. fill out how much each party was getting on on the program that I worked on, which was a drive time radio program, and we we didn't have to give everybody exactly the proportionate share each show, yeah. but across the whole week, mm. we had to make sure that our coverage followed that yeah. kind of grid. Mm. And it was, a, it was a real headache. Somebody mm. was allocated to do that every day. They sat there with a stopwatch when mm. someone was doing a live interview. And it was like, cut, cut, yeah. cut. We've had enough of this. We've got to stop now. And Because otherwise, you'd have to rebalance the whole... Yeah. Right across, yeah. you know, seven parties mm. or something. I like think, that. given as well mm. the particular fractious nature of this, what's going to be the election campaign? Yeah, given Brexit, people have got a really a real, eagle eye on yeah, it. Yeah, this is going to be a massive issue, mm. and the broadcasters will be under massive, uh, you know, pressure 
by the you know, well, not the least, parties. not least actually from the Brexit party because they're course. newcomers. Mm. But because they did so well in the European elections, their numbers and probably their airtime will go up as a result mm. of that. Even though their most famous person, Farage, is not actually standing, yeah. so it's it's a it's going to be a bit of a conundrum, and it'll be a yeah. right battlefield. You can guarantee. And that. also, it put, it's, it makes it very difficult for the broadcaster to actually produce uh, a program that's. That's entertaining. Tell me about it. I remember you know, it well. Allowing I a real well. windbag yeah. to, yeah. <laughs> to waffle on, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It does. It does make life. It does make life really difficult, and it can take. It can. It. it it's a constant source of complaint. Uh, mm. from all the parties during yeah. every election yeah. and during yeah. referendum campaigns. And I know from uh, colleagues of mine, former colleagues who are still at the Beeb, mm. that their experience during the during the Scottish independence referendum campaign and then the Brexit uh, referendum campaign, yeah. it became a bit of a nightmare because they were getting mm. constant complaints and mm. s they were really under the microscope um, yes. for it. Yeah. 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 So we'll see, we'll see how that develops. One of the other issues I just wanted to mention was uh, myself and Ellie, in fact, we, we were speaking to our, our first year um, students yesterday and we asked for a show of hands about who was registered to vote, expecting mm. that maybe even half of them or something like that. And there was a tiny number who had not registered. Mm, they were good. almost all, and many of them had registered. Mm. This is one thing to mention to other students who might be listening. Mm. You can register in two constituencies, at home and, and where you're studying. You can only vote once, yes. but you can register in two different places. So there might be quite a lot of tactical voting the, going uh, on there. Maybe that's the Bigrod Little effect. Yeah. <laughs> well, possibly. I'm yeah. saying nothing. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'll see how that pans out. But amongst other things, Dave, I think we're going on from this to talk about some election planning um, for, yes, for election Yes, yes, we were planning for... Uh, I mean, actually, we're going to be using our students, you know, their journalistic skills to report on the, on the night and have a live blog. So, yeah, lots of planning. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. OK, well, that, that's about it for, for this week, I think. Do remember to subscribe to Bang to Rights, please. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You'll also find us, of course, on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. You can contact us on Bang to Rights if there's anything from your lectures or from your reading you'd like us to discuss in future editions. But for the moment, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jez. Thanks, Pete. We have been Bang to Rights. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.